0: This is Parsha Panorama, and this week's Parsha is Parsha Mishpatim. And quite frankly, this has been quite a busy week at the database, Baruch Hashem. A lot of uploads this week, so go back and listen to all of them. Um, What I would have to say, just in introduction to this particular shir, is that as I'm recording... I'm not 100% sure if this is going to be a two-part shear for Parsha Panorama, or Amaparshas Mishpatim or if we'll be able to get it all into one. Obviously, my goal is to try to keep it as close to a half hour, not to go that much more over 40 minutes if necessary, but I would like to keep it around that area. And it could be due to uploads from earlier this week. For example, the Muslim that I uploaded, that actually answers um, up a lot of what we would have otherwise discussed. But there are two main things that I want to cover in this Parsha panorama. One of them is very robust very elaborate, and the other is really just its own um, separate issue, and we'll get to hopefully all of it if not in one shear in two shiurim. So here is what the agenda is for Parsha Panorama, for Parsha's Mishpatim. It's a very unique Parsha, um, at least among the ones that we've seen up until this point. And the first challenge, I would say, of Parsha's Mishpatim that we have to address is what I would call the miscellaneous mitzvah mishkababel. That's what it looks like we're looking at when we get to Parsha's Mishpatim. So... And with with, with this particular uh, concern, this has its own two concerns. Concern number one is, is there any structure to all the mitzvot that are discussed? You know, it starts off with evidivri, which we spoke about in Musra Minutes. Um, We spoke about it in a, in a, a lot of depth, actually. But it starts with that, but then it goes into a bunch of laws about hitting people and cursing your parents. And then it talks a little bit about... Um, damages and and uh, loans and treating a kohen with respect and a and a, and a judge with respect and f- uh, different rules for the courtroom and then talks about Shemitah a little bit. So, like, what what exactly is the nature of the of these mishpatim? Apparently, as the chumash refers to it, these are the mishpatim. So, what 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 is the is, is there structure in these mitzvot? The other aspect of this particular part of the Parsha is what exactly warranted this discussion. Why are we talking about the Mishpatim now? Hashem just gave the Bnei Israel the Eseres Debros. We didn't quite receive the Luchos yet. That's not going to happen until Parsha's Kisisa. And even then, um, you know, at least the, the beginning of the Parsha, the Luchos get smashed and they get shattered and Moshe Rabbeinu needs to get the new ones, which also happens in Kisisa, but not for now. What is for now is the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu had just, um, uh, and and Hakadosh Baruch Hu together have just relayed the Sarrus debras to the Bnei Israel. We spoke about a few other misvos that they mentioned, and then all of a sudden, vielaham Meshpatim. and these are the that they should put in front of them. Like what warranted that? And to, um, and, and the reason why this question is important is because this brings us back to the other. Big issue, which we did not yet mention on Parsha, uh, Parsha's Mishpatin, and that is the seeming rehashing. I don't, I don't know if I would call it a reimagining or another viewpoint. But we get to the second version of the Kabbalah Torah story, right? The, the the revelation at Har Sinai. We thought, oh, is that really just all in Parsha Siasra? And apparently, it's not, right? Apparently, the the the, the famous line of Naasev Nishma is not even in Kabbalah Satorah in Parshas Yisro, but it is in the version 2 of the story in Parshas Parsha Mishpatim, right, in 24-7, Chavdalad Zion. We have the line of nas seven Ishma. And in this part of the story, again, it just goes back to Kabbalah Satorah. We hear about... Um, the, the different groups of people when it came to the Bnei Israel, they were standing where they stood. The Zikhanim got to go up a little bit. Then Aaron and his family went closer. And the Moshe Rabbeinu went up into the clouds to go, to go actually to get the luchos, to obtain the luchos from a Baruch Hu. So Moshe Rabbeinu ascends for the luchos. That's recorded here at the very end of Mishpatim. It's not recorded in Parshas Yisro. And so that said, why exactly are we getting another version of the Kabbalah Zetorah story? Right, like, what, what, where in this entire story um, you know, is, is is this happening? When did this part happen? Did this part happen after the Mishpatim? Did it happen before the list of the Mishpatim were given to us? So we have to figure out what exactly is the role of the Mishpatim in our Parsha? Are they just a bunch of mitzvot? Because there's going to be a bunch more mitzvot coming later, right? In, in in Sefer Vayikra, in Parshas Kedoshim, for example, there are going to be a lot of mitzvot. Sefer Bamidbar, there won't be so many, but in Sefer Devarim, there will be a ton more. Right. Parsha's Kiseitse in, in Dvarim has the most mitzvahs of any Parsha, 74. But, uh, so beyond that, what is the role of these Mishpatim? Like, what, are, are they just laws? Are they something else? And when were they communicated to the B'nai Israel? But, and, and if they weren't communicated right here where they're placed, so why are they intersecting the story of Kabbalat Torah, right? Why is Kabbalat Torah split into two different stories? You have the story in Yisro, when we hear all the Sarzadibros. and then we have this other version of the story where the Chumash describes um, Hashem, he, he kind of like warns the B'nai Israel that I'm sending a malach in your midst and don't and don't, um, you know, don't disappoint that malach by, by um, disobeying my command because the malach is not going to be happy with you and the malach is going to strike you. And this seems to be like the prelude to the second version of the Kabbalat Torah story, where everyone comes close, they all approach Har to whatever level they're about they're allowed to approach. And uh, the Chumash describes this pro- prophecy of sapphire brickwork, which the, the which the which certain members of the Ben Shal were Zocha to see at that time. And then again, Moshe Rabbeinu goes up, and he you know he, he tells he tells um, you know our own you're in charge until I get back, and then that's really the end of it. and then, and then next week we're going to go into. Parshas Truma, which is a very different topic altogether. So when is all of this happening? What exactly is going on? And of course, the other question that we always have to address is in the larger panorama of the Torah at large, what exactly is the role of Parshas Mishpatim? Because you know, Parshas Yisra, we said, was seemingly the climax of our becoming the nation, the people who could possibly be worthy of being the conduit through which Hashem can bless the entire world and grant mankind the ultimate good. Right, and one of the one of the aspects of that was the idea that any you know person in the world, Jewish or not, you know, well, if he's Jewish, then obviously he is a part of Hashem's special nation. And if he's not a part of Hashem's special nation, by subjecting himself to the by attaching yourself to the Benei Israel, you could become part of the Benei Israel to a certain degree. Either you can convert, obviously, but you know no one's urging you to do that. But if a person becomes an Eved Kenani, for example, to a Benei Israel, so this is something that my brother and I spoke a lot about at length in, in our real talk to conversation on the Torah's perspective on slavery. Is it is slavery really intrinsically an immoral thing or is it something that we can argue uh, may, maybe has a place as a moral ideal in the Torah but the point is that a, an, an evid Kanani can actually receive blessing through his Jewish family and that can be considered possibly an ideal of sorts and that really started in Parshas Yisro. So if that's the case, so what's Parshas Mishpatim? Is, is it just mitzvot? Is it something else? And well, why exactly do we have the second version of the Kabbalah Satora story? Okay, so these are the things that I would like to cover in this shir, and if not in this shir, in two shir. So let's see with the remaining time that we have, let's see what we can accomplish. So let's, let's start off with why are we talking about the mishpatim? This is a question that we might not be able to fully answer until we get to the second segment, which is why Kabbalah Satora is split into two stories. Right, because um, you know you can make the argument that again, if these mishpatim listed here are not where they chronologically belong, and there's one major um, leading opinion to this point, uh, so that that these are not chronologically um, accurate, so then why are they um, why are they intersecting the kabbalah Torah story? Just put, bo- put both versions of the kabbalah story together. God bless you, whoever sneezing over there. Okay, so anyway. Let, God bless you. And that leading opinion in the face of many other Mufarshim and many other Pashtanim would be the opinion of Rashi. Rashi um, very clearly is assuming that the, the latter half of Parsha's Mishpatim was all coinciding with everything that happened in Parsha's Yisro. So re- really for Rashi, we have to understand what's the difference between Yisro and the end of Mishpatim. But clearly, Rashi seems to be, um, or at least he seems to very strongly be implying that the mitzvahs that are discussed here do not actually uh, belong here, but there was some um, other reason why they're being discussed here. To get Rashi's exact shown, so Rashi says, So what's v'eleh? Right, he says, so Eila versus vi'ela. Eila means to exclude whatever was said earlier. V'Eila means to connect this to what was said before. So, says Rashi, the reason why we're talking about these things now is so that you should realize that all of the mitzvahs were really taught at Har Sinai. Right, Maharishona af Meaning, even the mishpatim, even the civil laws, says the Mechelta, were, were taught at Har Sinai. And Rashi continues, he gives other reasons for the juxtaposition, he says that the laws of the court are put right next to the laws of the Mizbeach to teach you that the Sanhedrin um, would uh, would serve next to the Mikdash next to the Mizbeach. And this really connects that larger lesson that we've all heard about, the the relationship between synagogue and state, if you will, the idea that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is everywhere, he's in the civil, societal world, and he is in the Beis in the of HaMikdash, and the base and, and Haknesses as well. HaShem is everywhere, and therefore everywhere you are calls for a consciousness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is going to be very different from what a lot of other mafarshim say. So, for example, among the other Mefarshim, and we're going to come back to these opinions, because these opinions are going to be very important for the latter half of Mishpatim. So whatever I'm going to tell you, when we get to the second part of Mishpatim, which talks about that rehashing of Kabbalah Satora, so these opinions are all going to be very important. But again, the other group, the other, the other opinion out there, which is expressed by multiple mefarshim, just to give you a list, um, we have the Ramban, the Ibn Ezra, the Nitziv, the Malbim, the Svarno, they all understand that the Mishpatim is not just, um, you know, to te- it's not just juxtaposed to teach us lessons about the mitzvahs themselves and their relationship to the other mitzvahs, but this is actually a Hamshach, this is a continuation of the same conversation, that once the Yasser are over, the Chumash is actually kind of is branching out from the Asar Sidibros and basically the Mefarshim point out different connections that the Mishpatim have to the Asar Sidibros. So for example, the discussion about cursing your parents or how you shouldn't do that and how, how you should have respect for them so that obviously connects back to aim and how, um, um, you know, they, they connect the laws of the... A lot of the civil laws are connected back to, to Losachmod Right, because losanchem means that you're not supposed to be jealous of another person's possessions. Well, how do you classify what, who what belongs to whom in terms of in, in terms of monetary ownership? So all the laws of monetary um, of, of monetary issues those are all in Parshas Mishpatim. So the point is that the ramifications of the Asar Debros are really elaborated on in Mishpatim, and this connects back to what we really said last week. And this is something that Rashi is of the opinion of, and that is. The, the idea that the Asar are not just um, commandments, um, whether there are 10 commandments or perhaps 14 or so commandments, but they are broader categories that represent other mitzvahs in the Torah. And so, the, so the, some of these Mepharshim, they point out this, this exact idea. Um, um, again, the svarno says it's about Los Akhmad, I think the Ramban says it too. But the idea that the mitzvahs that we're talking about here are all elaborations. They're practical ramifications and, apl- and applications of the Aseris Adibros. And apparently this is part of that conversation. Now, what we still have to address is why exactly this is happening, and then we're going back to the Kabbalist story, the, the Kabbalist Torah story. So that's going to be, um, hopefully, explained later. But that is something that we still have to address. And all of these mefarshim, Rashi versus all of the others, it's going to be all very relevant later. So keep these mefarshim on the back of your mind for now. We are going to now, hopefully, go into explaining all the different mitzvos. Now, one of the things that's important that we mentioned in Muslim Minutes is, again, we focused a lot on the Ebed Um So, I think um, a, a, an important discussion to have is, why exactly does Parshas Mishpatim begin with the laws of Ebed ivri? Of all of these civil laws, it's just a very interesting one to begin with. We talk about the Hebrew slave, you know, slave ownership. Now, in terms of the hashkafah of slave ownership, that you'd have to once again go back to the Real Talk Torah conversation that I had with my brother, of Daniel. It was a great conversation. Um, I think, um, if I say so myself, very enlightening. Um, and for the hashkafah, that's where you would go. In terms of the thematic aspect, why the Torah would begin with this, so there I would tell you to go to Musr minutes, where um, in not too long of a of a share problem it definitely it was uh, it w- wasn't over um it was under 11 minutes, that I can tell you. We spoke about, and the the shear was titled, What Did His Ear Do Wrong? We spoke about why exactly the abed is being discussed now. But one of the, um, the main ideas is that there's clearly a connection to where the Bnei Israel had just come from. They came from Hebrew slavery. Um, not, not to, uh, not to uh, um, uh, other Bnei Israel, but they were slaves to Paro. And there might be some subliminal messaging speaking to the Bnei Israel in this, uh, you know, hopefully in a, in a later era, um, how they would how they would act in connection to what the uh, in connection to what they had gone through back in Egypt. So this is the mitzvah that we begin with. We begin with Eved Ivri. Now, let's just talk about the different categories. So normally, what we do in, in Parsha Panorama is I give you all the sections. I give you all the sections for the Parsha. Now, there are two interesting things I want to talk about um, in terms of this. Um, believe it or not there is um, there, there is a um, there was a Kriyas HaTorah system that actually had Parsha's Mishpatim as being not one Parsha but two Parshios, meaning the mitzvos in the Mishpatim were actually broken down somewhere in the middle the Sefer HaChinuch really alludes to this split because there's a part where uh, the, the Sefer HaChinuch has Parsha's Mishpatim or Ve'Eleha Mishpatim and then there's another part um, Im Kesef Talveh when it talks about lending money to another uh, to another person the loaning uh, giving out a loan that apparently um, and the, the i think the avud rum brings down this um this uh, minhug as well this uh, yeah this uh, it was apparently the minhug provence that on certain on, on certain years the crissatora you know sometimes we have you know leap years and sometimes we, we double up partios, sometimes we break up partios. they had a special custom um, a special tradition, I should say, for breaking up Parshas Mishpatim somewhere down the middle. That we had, it on the one hand, Parshas Mishpatim, on Mishpatim, and the other hand, I guess you would have called it Parshas Kesef, in, in Kesef Talva. Um, interesting that the, we have Parshas Shkalim, which is separate, but maybe possibly related. But um, something that we spoke about in a different Parsha Panorama for the special series. Be that as it may, I'll call that out because that's going to be important. Even though we're not going to focus so much on uh, how a parsha's hakasef might have uh, um, or parsha's kasef might have been its own parsha, but that's going to be relevant when we break down the sections. Because you might have wondered, you might have thought, you know, if you look, at the monetary laws are discussed in one part of mishpatim, and then the the laws pertaining to loans are in a different part of the parsha. So why would that be? So we'll have to discuss that. So. If I can give you the most broad categories of the civil mitzvahs, let me just first say that Parshas Mishpatim, the way I would break it up, basically, again, we so far said there are two parts. There's the mitzvahs part, and then there's the Kabbalah Satorah part. So in the mitzvahs part, I have eight sections, and then in the Kabbalah Satorah part, I just have two sections. One is God's angel that he says he's going to send, and he gives a whole promise, if you do everything you're supposed to do, you're going to inherit the land of Israel. And the second part is, again, going back to the Kabbalah Satara. If I would give it a title, if I would give it a name, I would call it Entering the Briss. And you know what? While we're here, I'm just going to let you know I'm going to do something that I don't normally do, but I'm going to post, hopefully, um, when, I, when, I, when I share the and I upload this recording. Now, I'm, I'm talking about it now. At this point, it should be uploaded as you're listening to it, but I'm going to have the notes, because I took very thorough notes for how the Parsha breaks work. And this will give you an, an insight into the structure for all the different mitzvahs. So I'm going to give you the list of those things now, focusing just on the mitzvahs part, the eight sections. So I'm going, to, I'm going to tell you the broad categories the way I explained it, and then we'll, we'll do them in depth. Okay, so the first section is the laws of the Hebrew servants, Evad Ivri. The second section I titled Domestic Crimes/slash Manslaughter. The third section I titled Monetary Obligations. The fourth section is an interesting one. I called it spiritual rejects versus societal rejects. We'll come back to that. Number five, right, that's where we have in Talva I refer to that section as the laws of loans. Section six, I refer to as positions of higher respect. We'll see what that means. Section seven, I refer to as ethical judgment calls. We have the laws of the court and social ethics. And then... The final section pertaining to mitzvot I have as sabbatical laws and divine statutes. There we talk about Shabbos, Shmita, the Shalosh Ragolem, and also some other mitzvahs like Bikurim and Baster B'chalav, which um, seem to randomly be in that set. And we won't have enough time to explain all of it, but those are the different sections. So again, the laws of Hebrew servants, and set number two is domestic crimes and manslaughter, three is monetary obligations, four is the spiritual versus the societal rejects, five is the laws of loans, six is positions of higher respect, seven is the ethical judgment calls which pertain to laws of the courtroom and social ethics, and finally, eight are the sabbatical laws and divine statutes. Okay, so those are the larger sections. Let's go through the details. Let's talk about each one, each section. So in Laws of Abed that's pretty simple. It talks about the Laws of the Abed Then when it comes to domestic crimes and manslaughter, um, we have the laws about what happens if you strike fellow man versus striking your parents. The halakha varies between those. It talks about kidnapping, how you can't curse your parents, talks about what happens when two people are involved in a brawl and someone dies in the the mix. That's the case of what I refer to as third-degree murder. You can Google these terms, third-degree murder, second-degree murder. Third-degree, I believe, is where you didn't intend to kill anybody, but someone ended up dying. Then we have a separate case of manslaughter of a servant, also a case of third-degree murder. Then you have another case of a brawl where there's a woman who accidentally gets hit and she miscarries, and there's a case of second-degree murder because apparently the you, you know, one guy intended to kill the other in the middle of the fight at least, and of course he didn't intend to kill this woman, but she died. Then the Chumash in this section as well talks about maiming a servant. And then we have the case that I like to refer to as the ox murderer. What happens if, 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 if an ox, if a person's ox kills another person? So, this is, all these cases are not about monetary damage as much as they are about damage to the person's body. Any damages to the person's body. Yes, bodies do have monetary value in halacha, but all of these are set apart in their own section, which I refer to once again as domestic crimes and manslaughter, because all of these refer to damages done to the body. Again, the goal here is to, is to find structure to the mitzvot here. because. Here we go from an ox, and we're going to go to monetary obligations in the next section, which starts off talking about a boar, a boar that damages, right? So let's go to monetary obligations. In monetary obligations, we have, and this is section three in my my notes, so we have damages, so we have nazikin, such as boar, and ashore, or Karen writes a bores when something gets damaged in a pit that you dug or that you were responsible for, or an ox that that, that damages someone else's property, um, namely maybe another ox. Then we have cases of theft, Different cases of theft. In the case of Tvicha Umechira, where a person steals a sheep or an ox and then slaughters it or sells it. We have the case of Baba Machteres, right? A person tunnels in. Um, there are circumstances under which you might be allowed to kill him, but this is all in the cases of theft. These are all still monetary obligations. Then the Chumash goes back to damages. To talk about Regel and Shane and ash, right? Where an, where an animal um, unintentionally damages by walking by or it eats something of your property or gets benefit from it and, and the damage of aish where the fire someone's fire burns something now why would the theft case be stuck in between the cases of of shore boar and you know or, or boar and karen right Shor goring someone um, um, why, why would the theft cases be stuck in between so I have a much longer essay on that topic but um, I'll say um, a simple Baal Batish technical answer would be at the first cases of Nizikin, they those occur really anywhere a shore or a boar a boar is in Rishasarambim at right? the shore is, is goring wherever he's goring but in the case of, of, of Regel and Shane for example those are all taking place specifically in, in, a, person's, in a person's property and that's exactly where theft takes place. You, you remove the thing from someone else's property. So you can have things that just damage wherever they are and you're responsible for them, like your ox or the pit that you, that, that you uh, dug up. The other cases where it comes to a person stealing or a person sending his own animal into the yard and then accidentally damaging, but those are things that a person is depriving from you within your own property. In this section, we also have cases of custody or custodianship or security, right? The cases of the shomrim. There are four different kinds of shomrim: shomrim Chinim, shomrim, 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 shomrim secher. Shom, um, uh, we have a, um, uh, shomrim, a Socher, or, um, and we have a Shoel, right? There's the, for the unpaid watchman, there's the paid watchman, there's the renter, and there is the borrower. And then we have a case of seduction. What's seduction doing here? So a narah uh, marasa who is being who's being seduced by another person. Um, so, in this particular case, the case where some, um, uh, the problem is that if, if another person seduces her and that what happens is if he doesn 't marry this individual, so she is now blemished because she is no longer a basula, she 's no longer a virgin, and this has monetary ramifications. so the case of seduction goes in with the monetary obligations that takes us through monetary obligations. So how about the other mitzvos? The next mitzvahs, I call this the rejects of society. There's the spiritual, and there is the the uh, the, uh, um, the societal rejects. So you could think of this as individuals are requiring special special action or attention. You have on the one hand very abominable people that the Torah says we don't we were not we you know we want these people should die basically you have a witch a or a perpetrator of bestiality or an idolater that's one section and then on the other extreme you have the ger the almana and the yasom the stranger the widow and the orphan whom they may be they might be social outcasts in their own right they're downtrodden and they might be rejects of society just by dint of the fact of something that they couldn't control on their own, and they're, they're naturally downtrodden. Hashem says that you have to take care of them. So, what is the nature of this series? It sounds like maybe there's a balance and a contrast between brazen action against perpetrators of abominable acts, um, you know, who, who, who are manipulative... And then on the other side, the careful regard for the downtrodden. A colleague of mine, Ravasi Kent, or Rav Vassal Kent, he um, connected this to the Gemara in Megillah on Lamid Aleph and Manalph, which talks about Hashem's greatness on the one hand and his anvasanuso, his humility on the other hand. Right? Uh, that the idea that Hashem's greatness, his, his gedula, is reflected by the fact that a witch, for example, who tries to manipulate nature and through black magic in Hashem's world, or someone who distorts nature by committing bestiality, or someone who is an idolater, so Hashem has a counterattack to them, but on the other hand, Hashem doesn't just care about his own glory, he cares about the Yasam, the almana, and the ger, Hashem sticks up for the downtrodden, and, and for the vulnerable so that's these are the these are the rejects of society whether society rejects them or on the other hand whether hashem rejects them and there's special ways that we have to treat them so that really takes us through section four the rejects of society the next section we get to this other parsha right uh, in, again in some traditions there's a separate parsha here parsha's kesef im kesef talve which is the law uh, we have here all of the laws of loans which talks about, for example, ribbis and neshech, not 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 um, lending with interest. Um, we have mashkon, all the rules of collateral. If someone, as opposed to showroom custodianship, collateral is where you, um, um, you 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 owe someone something, and before paying them back, when you're not able to pay them back yet, they get to, they they get to hold on to something of yours. So the question is, why is this section of loans not all the way back in section? Three, which we called monetary obligations. We're now in section five. Why are the laws of loans here? And the answer, I think, is important. This is the answer to this question is also an answer to another question. Why, Why am I working so hard to, to, to define and categorize all these mitzvahs? The answer is because categories make a difference in halacha. Because, for example, not everything... You know, the, the rules of loans might not be really about monetary obligations, if you think about it. It's really more about ethics. In fact, this is reflected in the Sifrei Halacha. Just for example, the Torah of the Shulchan Aruch, if you look for the laws of ribbis, where would you expect to find the laws of ribbis? I know the first time that I saw the Shulchan Aruch, and I saw on the binding, where I saw the word ribbis and found that the Halachos were not in where I would expect it. I, I, I didn't expect them to be, where I found them. I thought ribbis, the laws of interest, were monetary laws that could be found in Choshin Mishpat. And guess what? They're not in Choshin Mishpat. You know where they are? They're in Yoradeya. Choshin Mishpat talks about all the monetary obligations, and yoredeah talks about Isr V'Heter, meaning things which God calls user, things which God calls mutter in Halacha, and these things are governed by a very different set of laws. Meaning if someone lends someone with interest and the other guy ends up paying the interest, we don't necessarily say that the guy, that that, that the recipient of the money, um, you know, of of that interest money, um, who's, you know, the the creditor, we don't say that the creditor is necessarily stealing in halacha. And we don't say that the money that he receives necessarily doesn't belong to him. It could be according to halacha, he has to pay back the interest and not keep the interest. But that's not governed by the laws of choshe and mishpah, of monetary obligations, that's governed by by Esther we find a similar um, phenomenon by Shemitah, By the way, Shmita um, does not necessarily mean that you know um, this. I, I think this happens to the Machlokus. But when when we say Shmita, does that mean that your stuff is automatic, or your, your your produce in your field is automatically hefker? Or do we say that you have a biblical obligation to make it hefker, to make it ownerless? And until you do so, it's actually not ownerless, and someone who takes it could be called a, a thief. But the point is that, uh, just to recognize, that categories matter in halacha. There's a difference between chosheh and mishpat and Nisr v'hetzer. There are a lot of halachic differences that are affected by this difference. So we have uh, an ethical law about loans. One of the laws of ethics when it comes to loans is that we do not um, lend to our own brethren with interest. Even though, from a business perspective, that might be called normal, but the Torah doesn't just care about us acting normally. The Torah cares about us acting according to a higher ideal. Now let's go to the positions of higher respect. Section 6 I called again once Once again, positions of higher respect. The Chumash says you have to respect a judge or a prince, a nasi. It talks about the Kohen, that you have to give him the truma and the Bukhor. And then the, Ch- the Chumash also says um, that we can't eat treif. Why are these all in a section together? What exactly is this about? Again, how you treat the Nasi, how you treat the Kohen, and then you can't eat treif. So if you look really closely at this little section, this little parsha, this little paragraph in the Chumash, it prefaces not eating treif with Anshe Kodesh, Tihi li that you should be holy people to me. In other words, the prohibition against eating treif is a reflection of the higher stature of a, even a typical Ben Yisrael. He's up on a pedestal. Right, We spoke a lot, and uh, again, going back to the conversation that I had with my brother on slavery, there are spiritual hierarchies in the Torah, and in Halacha, and a Ben Yisrael is somewhere up there, even if he's not a Kohen. So, so with the positions of higher respect, the consciousness, the consciousness that we have to have, whether it's for a Nasi, or even for a Kohen, or even for a Ben Yisrael, that we're not allowed to have treif, all of these are reflected by our, our elevated level of holiness, we all have it on some level, And therefore that requires certain actions so here the chumash after telling us about loans tells us about these positions of higher respect and maybe this connects back to the same idea that even though it might be in the normal world in the real world you know in the secular world interest might be called normal but we act on an elevated level okay now we get on to section seven which i titled ethical judgment calls we have laws of the court and social ethics this is a very interesting section because the Chumash starts off talking about the courtroom. Then it veers off to talk about a very different topic, about what happens when you find someone's lost object or you find a person who's trying to load up his animal. And then the Chumash goes back talking about the courtroom. Very, very strange. So the first, first it talks about integrity and judgment, that the majority is supposed to win by two, you know, you follow the majority, obviously, and you're supposed to, again, you're, you're, you're supposed to not, um, you know, um, not to give special treatment to, um, let's say, someone who you view as being downtrodden, maybe a poor person or versus a rich person, right? So you can't give any extra credence to someone just by their social status or their socioeconomic status. So that's about integrity and judgment, right? And then... The Chumash talks about the restoration of lost objects. Shava the Shavasaveda Then it talks about loading the animal of your enemy. So it says you have. So if your enemy loses something, you have to give it back. If he, um, if he's trying to load his animal, you got to work together with him. And then the Chumash goes back to talk about more corruption and judgment. For example, taking a bribe—that's something that you can't do. So why are all these section? Why is this whole section like this together in one? Why are we meshing courtroom with? you know, sins that you might encounter on the road, or or mitzvahs that you might encounter on the road? And the answer, I think, is in my title. I call this ethical judgment calls, right? The laws of the courtroom and the laws of social ethics do not fundamentally differentiate from one another, the idea being that ethics exist everywhere. Just like we said a little bit at the beginning of this year, that there are ethics in the courtroom, there are ethics on the road, and of course there's, there, there's, there are rules for a, for a base measure and a basic kinesis as well, but corruption can exist anywhere. And just because the guy is your enemy doesn't mean that that's okay, according to the Torah, to ignore something you know, if he needs help. And in the same vein, just like bribery is bad, because you might have a personal bias, and you're going to do the wrong thing, you're going to make the wrong judgment call because you're accepting a bribe, or because you feel bad because the guy's a poor man, that is also, you know, even if you have the best things in mind, or you have the worst things in mind, if you're, if, you're, if you're doing it out of animus and malice against your enemy, or if you're doing it because, oh, he's a poor guy, or you're doing it because someone's giving you a bribe, all of these things are things that can corrupt your ethical judgment call. So, that, 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 but that's the idea in this section. Finally we get to section 8 The sabbatical laws and divine statutes Which includes Shabbos and Shemitah The mentioning of other gods um, All the different pilgrimages right? The Shlosh regalim And then we have Bikur M'Basar B'chalav So this section is all about Ritualistic mitzvos And this really ties everything together That in the second section From Im Kesef Talve and on We're not talking about Typical monetary obligations We are talking about Where Where consciousness of Hashem Is what you need It's not just about Oh, you know Legal status of an object Who does this belong to But your decision making And all the things you do Are governed by For example Shabbos Hashem runs the world Or Hashem cares about What you do in the courtroom Hashem cares about your ethics When you loan something To someone else You lend someone something But this is the other section Now, now that we've understood all of these sections, again, respectively, um, the laws of of, of Hebrew servants, domestic crimes and manslaughter, monetary obligations, different kinds of members of society, the spiritual versus the societal rejects, the laws of loans, the positions of high respect, ethical judgment calls, whether in the the courtroom or social ethics, or the sabbatical laws and divine statutes, what, in fact, is the role of all of these mitzvot as we're talking about them now? Right? Is, uh, is it just the idea that all of civil law is also a or is there something more here? So again, the Ramban, Ibn Ezra, the Nitzvah, the and the Svarna, they all have a different approach. And this is going to help us understand a little bit of what Mishpatim is doing in between two Kabbalah Satorah stories. Coming off of Yisro, we saw Kabbalah Satorah, now we're seeing it again in of Mishpatim. Let me see how we're doing on time. Okay, I'm going to try to fit this all into here, because I I, th- I, think, it, I think it's worth it. We'll, we'll make it one sheer okay so why um, why, we ha- why is Kabbalah being reiterated and again why, why was uh, the narrative interrupted and broken into two parts by the mitzvahs in between so part of this answer I'm gonna um, invoke something that I heard um, a number of years ago from my Rebbe Rav and Sachs about the difference between Yisro and Mishpatim because these are two different phases Rashi kind of conflates them and says that these are all happening together and it could be they were happening together but why are there two different parshios for it? Because there are two different things happening and according to the other Mepharshim there is certainly something else happening here. Yisro says Rav Saks is the parsha where we became B'nai Mitzvah. Like a Bar Mitzvah notice that in parshas Yisro we do not say Na'aseh Vinishma but we do say Na'aseh. When someone asks you the question are you going to do the things that I tell you to do the answer is Na'aseh we will do it. But when it comes to harsh har- it's not just about being Bene Mitzvah. It's not just being commanded to do something. But Cesar of Snacks, the second section is Knessa la It's one thing to be commanded and to be and to be bound bound by a command, but the other aspect is to be bound by a covenant. We become members of Hashem's bris in Mishpatim, and where do you see this? Like, like who who, who are we quoting for this? It's the Chumash itself. The Chumash explains that Moshe Rabbeinu read the contents, the terms of the Sefer Habris. The Chumash literally calls it a Sefer Habris. Moshe Rabbeinu read a Sefer Habris to the Bnei Israel, the terms of the contract, and he says, when it comes to the terms of a contract. It's not enough just to say, na'aseb, we will do. You also have to say, vinishma. We will listen. We will make sure we understand the terms of the contract, right? You don't just click, I agree, to the terms without reading it, even though we all do that. But when it, now, this doesn't mean that we don't have faith, because again, we, we put na'aseb before nishma. This is true. But nishma, eventually, you know, you're gonna to have to review the terms of the contract so you understand that when you're a part of God's covenant, what that means. This is the parsha where Hashem says, if you don't obey me, the malach who represents the Midas Hadin, this malach is going to strike you down. Because there's a rule, there's something called Mishpatim. Very fascinatingly, related to all of this, the word Mishpatim comes up later in the Chumash, in our parsha. In this the same parak which talks about the continuation of the Kabbalah Satora story, and in this section, the Chumash is very clear about some aspect of mishpatim. When they're entering the bris, which by the way, Rav Sachs continues, Rav Yannos and he says that when it comes to this this uh, the the entering of the bris, all of the halachos that we learn about conversion are derived from this Parsha. We have the B'nai Yisrael, they offer karbanos. We don't find any karbanos in Parsha Yisrael. In Mishpatim, there's a description of karbanos that they offered. And there's the sprinkling of the dam, and, the, and there, there's, a, there's a whole ritual, right? Accepting mitzvot is not a ritual, right? But entering a bris requires a ritual. It's one thing to say na'aseh and to say I'm going to do the mitzvahs. It's another entirely different thing to be a part of Hashem's bris. And as we're going to see, the mishpatim have everything to do with this. So what's the pasuk I'm looking for? So the pasuk says in par- um, so again, parash mishpatim, parak chav gimel, sorry, parak chav dalid, pasuk vav, v'yikach sefer ha'bris, v'yikra b'azne ha'am, and he took who? Moshe. Moshe took, this is after the karbanos, after the sprinkling of the blood, Fine. So, he takes the book of the covenant He reads it in the ears of the, of the nation And they said Then the chomish says that he Takes the dam of the bris sprin- And he sprinkles it on the people what am I, Where's the other Pasuk? There's another Pasuk that I'm looking for Okay so the Pasuk I was looking for Comes much earlier in Parak Chav right, the beginning of the ascent for the Luchos. So, Veal Moshe Amar. I'm just going to start from Aleph. And, and to Moshe, Hashem said, "Alel Hashem, come to, go up to Hashem." Atav Aroon Nadav Avihu Veshive Mizik israel Vishtach Vistamir Chok. Fine. V'negash Moshe levado. Moshe goes by himself. Hashem behim loyigasher. No one else will, will go with him. V'Am loyalu imo. Fine. Pasuk Gimel. This is the important pasuk. They're all important. But this is the one important for our conversation. Va'yavo Moshe, Moshe came by Saper La'am, and he relayed to the people, the devrei Hashem, this kol mishpatim and all of the mishpatim. What mishpatim? So, if you look at Rashi, you're not going to find what you might have expected. So we'll get to Rashi after. But, the Ramban, the Ibn Ezra, the Netzib, the and the Svarno, they all say, what mishpatim are we talking about? Of course, we're talking about the mishpatim that we just listed. In, meaning, the mishpatim are a part of the story. We're wondering why are the mishpatim interrupting the story. The answer is they're not. They are a part of the story. Part of the story was after the asar Debros, Moshe Rabbein would relay all of the commandments in our parsha. What are these commandments? What, what do they represent? Are they just a bunch of mitzvahs, or are they something else? So we'll explain in a second. What does Rashi say the mishpatim are referring to? The Sefer habris. Rashi says, Shiva mitzvos, the Shavu' mitzvos Noach, and Shabbos and Kibud Av and Para Aduma and Dinan, all the things that were taught in Mura, according to the Gemara in Sanhedrin Nun Vav Amud Beis." Meaning, Rashi is taking an approach from Chazal that when it says mishpatim here, it's not talking about the mishpatim that we just listed; it's talking about separate mitzvos that they had already. Rashi says this because Rashi is clearly running under the assumption. That the Kabbalah Torah stories happened altogether, and that none of the mitzvot were relayed beyond the Asar, Adibros and the other three that came after them in last week's parsha, um, no, um, and that this is not in, in chronological order. But if you go with the other mepharshim, the Ramban, Ibn Ezra, Sfarno, Nitziv, Malbin, they all say that these are the terms of the contract. The Sefer HaBris contains all of the Mishpatim, whether about Shabbos or monetary obligations. Um, about the, the, the shalosh regalim or the rules of loans or the rules of custodianship or the rules of domestic crimes or how to treat certain people in society. So all of these mitzvos are, like we said earlier, an elaboration of the Osiris Dibros, but they are the terms of the contract, meaning that these two these two might represent broader categories in a certain respect. Right? Like you can have something that classifies as bore as a pit that's damaging, even though it's not literally a pit. And you can have, you know, any kind of obstacle can be a, can be the damage of boar. And it doesn't have to be an ox to be governed by the rules of an ox that damages. But we have these broader constructs. These are an elaboration and a real-life application of the Aserciedibros, the broader categories, into smaller categories. If we can use the Mashal, you know, you have a whole... Um, you know, you have all, a whole constitution, you have a whole set of amendments, and then, like we said last week, you have a Bill of Rights, deal. So if the Aseris Dibros are the Bill of Rights, this is now the fine print. This is all the applications of those Aseris Dibros in real time in the covenant, the Sefer Habris, that says, it's not just, oh yeah, ten wonderful commandments and just make sure you don't kill and make sure you're not jealous of people, of, of things that they own, and you could be a wonderful person. It's not that. But it's every single one of these has, has so many different ramifications in real life and they affect our lives all over the place. That is what it means to enter a bris. To enter a bris does not just mean that I accept broad commandments on me, but it means that I recognize the, how relevant they're going to be in my life and that there are ramifications and there are consequences to my actions. That's what Parsha's Mishpatim is. That Parsha's Mishpatim teaches us Part of, the, uh, part of the Kabbalah Satorah process is not just that we become Hashem's people by, uh, by committing to do things, but by being bound by those things. By being bound by those things as members of a covenant with Hashem, a covenant that works two ways. What, what do you mean the covenant that works two ways? Going back to the very first Parsha panorama that we had. Hashem created the world with the intention of giving the ultimate good to mankind. And he did so in the form of a commandment. And not just the commandment, you know, don't eat from the tree, but there's something that's going to happen if you listen to me, if you don't listen to me. If you don't do the right thing, there will be a consequence. Why is this necessary for creation? Because we said, B'Shem the Ramchal, that the ultimate good has to be something that is earned. The only way for it to be earned is that man has to choose it. And the only way for there to be choice is for there to be options. There has to be the ultimate good. And for there to be an ultimate good, there has to be the alternative. There has to be its opposite, its foil. There has to be ultimate bad. And that means that there are consequences. That means there's a covenant that works two ways. That you are going to be mirrored. Whatever you do in this world, Hashem has a counter-response. And if you do what you're supposed to do, so that we don't, have, we don't need to eat from the Naham, the Kisufa, the bread of embarrassment, we, Hashem's not giving us a handout. But if we make the choice to get the ultimate good, then we will receive the ultimate good. And if we make the alternative choice, chas so just by nature of the design, we have to receive the alternative to the ultimate good. But that's what Parshas Mishpatim is. This uh, this is the terms of the contract of Kabbalah Satorah, the Sefer Habris, and that takes us through an incredible Parshas Mishpatim. I hope you gain from this. Bezra HaShem next week, we will pick up with Parshas Truma, where we learn more about the ramifications of our relationship with Hashem. And we'll see... Um, when we talk about the Mishkan, two very um, different ways of understanding the the role of the Mishkan in our lives and um, with all the ramifications for that. Anyway, have an absolutely wonderful Shabbos. Thanks for joining us here at the database for this Parsha Panorama.